Now in our 22nd year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1140, with a release and air date of Saturday, January 2nd, 2021. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 22nd year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1140 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The Federal Communications Commission reduces the proposed amateur radio application fee to $35. The amateur radio population numbers fall in Japan while rising in South Africa. The FCC will require valid email addresses on all applications starting on June 29, 2021. Special call signs are issued in Belgium during that country's second lockdown and they will be on the air till January 31st. There's a brand new JSJTX digital protocol out there. We will tell you all about it. Solar Cycle 25 is becoming more active as a massive solar flare has caused radio outages in the Southern Hemisphere. An amateur in Kentucky has designed that state's new amateur radio license plate. We will introduce you to him. New Zealand adds wireless power transfer to charge electric vehicles to its list of unlicensed radio systems. A California community starts a GoFundMe page to replace a tower used by first responders and amateurs during the recent wildfires. And we will introduce you to Claude Shannon. Who's he? Well, he invented the future. You will meet him in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will cover the end of life for Adobe's Flash, which is coming up in a few days, and will answer the question, are lithium batteries safe? He will discuss their care and feeding this week. Australia's own Anno Benshoff, VK6FLAB, will tell us that you should test a link on one band at a time. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill covers how amateur radio fared at the very first international radio conference. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about what tools you should bring as you head up the tower for that antenna repair that you have been putting off. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in Albany, New York, where the new year was greeted with a trifecta of snow, ice, and rain, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson. W-A-2-H-O-Y, and wishing everyone a very happy new year. And reporting from our ham radio station in the western Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, where it's a happy new year to one and all, I'm Don Hulick, K-2-A-T-J. And reporting from our news bureau in Troy, New York, where we're experiencing the calm before the storm, I'm Eric Sattel, K-D-2-R-J-X. And wishing you a happy new year from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, 
I'm Fred Fitty, November Fox 2 Fox. And reporting from our news bureau in damp, chilly, snowy northwest Arkansas, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. And now with our lead story, here's Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. Leading off our news this week. The FCC has agreed with ARRL and other commenters that its proposed $50 fee for certain amateur radio applications was too high to account for the minimal staff involvement in these applications. In a report and order released on December 29th, the FCC scaled back to $35 the fee for a new license application, a special temporary authority request, a rule waiver request, a license renewal application, and a vanity call sign application. All fees are per application. There will be no fee for administrative updates, such as a change of mailing or email address. This fall, ARRL filed comments in firm opposition to the FCC proposal to impose a $50 fee on amateur radio license and application fees and urged its members to follow suit. As the FCC noted in its report and order, although some commenters supported the proposed $50 fee as reasonable and fair, ARRL and many individual commenters argued that there was no cost-based justification for application fees in the amateur radio service. The fee proposal was contained in a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking in MD Docket 2270, which was adopted to implement portions of the Repack Airwaves yielding better access for users of Modern Services Act of 2018, which is known as the Raybombs Act. After reviewing the record including the extensive comments filed by amateur radio licensees, and based on our revised analysis of the cost of processing mostly automated processes discussed in our methodology section, we adopt a $35 application fee, a lower application fee than the Commission proposed for the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking for Personal Licenses, in recognition of the fact that the application process is mostly automated, the FCC said in the report and order. We adopt the proposal from the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking to assess no additional application fee for minor modifications or administrative updates, which also are highly automated. The FCC said it received more than 197,000 personal license applications in 2019, which includes not only ham radio license applications, but commercial radio operator licenses and general mobile radio service, or GMRS licenses. The Commission turned away the arguments of some commenters that the FCC should exempt amateur radio licensees. The FCC stated that it has no authority to create an exemption where none presently exists. The Commission also disagreed with those who argued that amateur radio licensees should be exempt from fees because of their public service contribution during emergencies and disasters. We are very much aware of these laudable and important services amateur radio licensees provide to the American public, the FCC said, but noted that specific exemptions provided under Section 8 of the so-called Ray Bombs Act, requiring the FCC to assess the fees, 
do not apply to amateur radio personal licenses. Emergency communications, for example, are voluntary and not required by our rules, the FCC noted. As we have noted previously, while the value of the amateur service to the public as a voluntary, non-commercial communications service, particularly with respect to providing emergency communications, is one of the underlying principles of the amateur service, the amateur service is not an emergency radio service. The Act requires that the Commission switch from a congressionally mandated fee structure to a cost-based system of assessment. The FCC proposed application fees for a broad range of services that use the FCC's universal licensing system, including the amateur radio service, which had been excluded previously. The 2018 statute excludes the amateur service from annual regulatory fees, but not from application fees. While the Raybombs Act amended Section 9 and retained the regulatory fee exemption for amateur radio station licensees, Congress did not include a comparable exemption among the amendments it made to Section 8 of the Act, the FCC report and order explained. The effective date of the fee schedule has not been established, but it will be announced at least 30 days in advance. The FCC has directed the Office of Managing Director, in consultation with relevant offices and bureaus, to draft a notice for publication in the Federal Register announcing when rule changes will become effective once the relevant databases, guides, and internal procedures have been updated. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Effective on June 29, 2021, amateur radio licensees and candidates must provide the FCC with an email address on all applications. If no email address is included, the Commission may dismiss the application as defective. On September 16th, the FCC adopted a report and order in WT Docket 19-212 on completing the transition to electronic filing, licenses and authorizations, and correspondence in the wireless radio services. The report and order was published on December 29th in the Federal Register. The FCC has already begun strongly encouraging applicants to provide an email address. Once an email address is provided, the FCC will email a link to an official electronic copy of the license grant. An official copy will also be available at any time by accessing the licensee's password-protected Universal Licensing System account. Licensees can log into the ULS License Manager System with their Federal Registration Number, or FRN, and password at any time and update anything in their FCC license record, including adding an email address. For questions or password issues, call the CORS FRN helpline at 877-480-3201. Monday through Friday, 
from 1300 to 2300 UTC or reset the password on the FCC website. The only way to refrain from providing an email address on an application would be to submit a request to waive the new rule, providing justification for the request. The FCC would not be obliged to grant such a request. Under Section 9721 of the new rules, a person holding a valid amateur radio station license must apply to the FCC for a modification of the license grant as necessary to show the correct mailing and email address, licensee name, club name, license trustee name, or license custodian name. For a club or military recreation station license, the application must be presented in document form to a club station call sign administrator who must submit the information to the FCC in an electronic batched file. Under new section 97.23, each license must show the grantee's correct name, mailing address, and email address. The email address must be an address where the grantee can receive electronic correspondence, the amended rule will state. Revocation of the station license or suspension of the operator license may result when correspondence from the FCC is returned as undeliverable because the grantee failed to provide the correct email address. The number of licensed amateur radio stations has decreased once again in Japan, according to Japan's Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communications. There were 389,343 licensed hams this past December, a drop of 12,837 from December of 2019. In that month, there were 402,180 licensed stations, but that number was well signified a drop of about 15,000 from the previous year. The majority of Japanese radio operators hold a Class 4 license, which was introduced as an entry-level license in the 1950s. Meanwhile, a new group of licensed amateurs gets ready to get on the air in South Africa. Test results are in, and the South African Radio League reports there's a 95% pass rate for those who sat for the exam. That means 81 new hams. Two of the candidates took the exam for a Class B license, which is the entry-level license, and is assigned a ZU prefix. In Switzerland, changes have been made under the new Telecommunications Act, affecting the administration of amateur radio operations and related costs. The Swiss regulator Ofcom is moving to a license-exempt model that will require hams to have a certificate of ability after passing a qualifying exam. Hams will be charged 110 Swiss francs, or about $122 in U.S. money, for call sign issuance. Swiss hams will be required to pay a reduced annual fee of 50 Swiss francs, or $55, down from 96 Swiss francs for their annual license. Repeater and remotely operated stations continue to need to be registered, and they will pay a one-time fee of 70 francs. The same one-time registration fee applies to systems operating above 1 gigahertz, such as those hams wishing to use the Q0100 satellite system. In short, many procedures remain largely unchanged, according to Switzerland's National Amateur Radio Society. The Union of Swiss Shortwave Amateurs said in an announcement that the path to amateur radio is still the same, and for the already active radio amateurs, everything remains as it was. Only the management of frequencies and the associated terms have been rearranged. The changes are in effect beginning January 1st of 2021. Belgian amateurs activate the following special event call signs to remind everyone of pandemic restrictions 
and express gratefulness to medical personnel. With details from Southgate Amateur Radio Vibes, here is Steve Richards, G4HPE. Belgian amateurs are activating the following special event call signs to remind everyone of COVID-19 restrictions and to express gratitude to medical personnel. The call signs to look out for are Oscar Sierra 2 Hope, Oscar Tango 5 Alive, Oscar Tango 4 Care, Oscar Romeo 2 Stay Home, Oscar Tango 6 Safe, Oscar Quebec 5 Be Clever, Oscar Romeo 6 Life, and Oscar Tango 2 Care. And there's also a special call sign for the academic hospital in Leuven, Belgium. It's Oscar Oscar 4 Uniform Zulu Leuven. Due to the recent stricter COVID-19 measures, many radio amateurs will be forced to spend most of the following weeks at home again. Many are obliged to telework. Teleworking is definitely becoming the new standard for many employees. COVID-19 has accelerated teleworking for almost all companies. At the request of the Royal Union of Belgian Radio Amateurs, the UBA, the regulator, BIPT, has decided to once again grant permission for Belgian hams to apply for customised special call signs. These special call signs may be used at the home address of radio amateurs. The licence conditions are the same as during the first lockdown in spring, and radio amateurs are allowed to re-request the special call sign obtained during the first lockdown. Operation will be until January the 31st, 2021. And for QSL information, go to qrz.com. WSJT-X version 2.4.0 has introduced a new digital protocol called Q65, which is designed for minimal two-way QSOs over especially difficult propagation paths, the Quick Start Guide says. Here with more details on the new protocol is Steve Richards, G4HPE, reporting from Southgate Vibes. The next issue of WSJTX 2.4.0 will introduce Q65, a digital protocol designed for minimal two-way QSOs over especially difficult propagation paths. On paths with Doppler spread of more than a few hertz, the weak signal performance of Q65 is the best amongst all WSJTX modes. Q65 is particularly effective for tropospheric scatter, ionospheric scatter and Earth-Moon-Earth on the VHF and higher bands, as well as other types of fast-fading signals. Q65 uses 65-tone frequency shift keying and builds on the demonstrated weak signal strengths of QRA64, a mode introduced to the WSJTX suite in 2016. Q65 differs from QRA64 in the following important ways. It has a new low-rate QRE repeat accumulate code for forward error correction. Q65 has a unique tone for time and frequency synchronization. As with JT65, this sync tone is readily visible on the waterfall spectral display. Unlike JT65, synchronization and decoding are effective even when meteor pings or other short signal enhancements are present. The new mode features optional submodes with transmit-receive sequence lengths of 15, 30, 60, 120 and 300 seconds. And there's a new, highly reliable list decoding technique for messages that contain previously copied message fragments. User messages and sequencing is identical to those in FT4, FT8, FST4 and MSK144. 
And you can find the Q65 Quick Start Guide at physics.princeton.edu. According to the guide, Q65 will enable stations with a modest Jaggy and 100 watts or more to work one another on 6 meters at distances up to 1,600 kilometers at most times, even in dead band conditions. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. ARRL Amateur Radio Emergency Service volunteers remained ready to deploy in Williamson County, Tennessee, in the aftermath of an apparently intentional explosion early on Christmas morning in downtown Nashville. In addition to injuring at least three people and possibly killing one, damaging more than 40 buildings, and causing multiple water main breaks, the blast disrupted telecommunication systems. The explosion occurred in front of an AT&T switching facility. Nashville's mayor has declared a civil emergency and imposed a curfew through December 27th. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee called the damage shocking and has requested a federal emergency declaration. ARRL Vice Director and Williamson County Emergency Coordinator Ed Hudgens WB4RHQ, who lives in Nashville, is monitoring the situation. Here in Nashville and the surrounding counties, things are a bit of a mess still. The explosion did a lot more damage than was originally thought. AT&T now has about 30 mobile cell units deployed throughout the area. Since about 0730 on Christmas morning, we have had monitoring nets up and running on the local analog repeaters and DMR repeaters. We have mainly been answering questions as best we can, considering the limited information coming out from AT&T. My areas group is ready to deploy to the Williamson County PSC to assist with communications for various county offices when the call comes. M-Tiers, the Middle Tennessee Emergency Amateur Repeater System, is holding nets on our DMR repeater system several times a day. The main repeater at the Tennessee Emergency Management Agency site is affected by the outage, and fortunately, we just last week got two DMR repeaters online in Williamson County, and all communications is going through them. Williamson County Aries is holding a continuous net on our five-repeater linked system to assist hams as needed. We are relaying news updates from AT&T and county governments and assisting callers on AT&T to implement wireless calling on their phones. In the future, we may start taking traffic and routing it to the state nets. The monitoring net on the linked system will remain up until AT&T systems begin to come back online, he added. Hudgens said that a net is active in Davidson County in Middle Tennessee. In addition to the Williamson County Aries net, the M-Tiers system is active and providing similar information. Our DMR repeater is also up and running. ARRL headquarters has reached out to Tennessee Section Manager David Thomas 
KM4NYI to offer any possible assistance. A public address system on the RV broadcasts continuous warning messages, counting down from 15 minutes. Police called to the site after reports of gunfire quickly evacuated residents. According to FEMA, outages with patient tracking systems were reported, but there is no anticipated impact on patient care. Air traffic at Vanderbilt University Medical Center is on hold due to a communication outage, FEMA said. Vanderbilt University Medical Center is the only Level 1 trauma center serving the region. AT&T is experiencing service outages across Middle Tennessee and Kentucky, including with local 911 systems, cable TV, telephone, and Internet customers. The Tennessee Emergency Operations Center is at partial activation, experiencing telephone and Internet outages. The FBI is heading up the investigation. FEMA reports it's received no requests for assistance. After 41 years, Hamcom has decided to close its doors due to the difficulties caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and the rising costs of putting on a show. The decision was not made lightly, but the safety and wellness of our volunteers, vendors, clubs, presenters, and attendees is our paramount concern, Hamcom President Bill Nelson, AB5QZ, said in an announcement on the Hamcom website. Hamcom has been held each June at the Plano Event Center in Plano, Texas. We sincerely thank each and every person for their support over the past years, Nelson said. This starts with clubs who have participated in offering forums, transmitter sessions, volunteer examiner sessions, talk-ins, and many more things through the years. Nelson also expressed appreciation for the vendors, volunteers, and visitors. Hamcom is proud to contribute to bringing people together to enjoy this passion. We will definitely miss this gathering of the broader community, Nelson concluded. Our thoughts and best wishes to you and your families. Finnish International Amateur Radio Union Member Society, SRAL, is asking for amateur radio privileges on 220 to 225 MHz as a replacement for the 1240 to 1300 MHz band, which was deleted last April 24th, except for the use by special permit. SRAL's initial request for 902 to 928 MHz was turned down. The request is to provide spectrum for amateur TV operation. The special permits for the 1.2 GHz band will expire when Galileo GNSS GPS constellation becomes fully operational. Concerns have arisen in Europe regarding the potential of amateur radio interference to one Galileo frequency. The European Conference and Telecommunications Administration's Working Group, SE40, covering the space service compatibility issues, met in early December to discuss the 1240 to 1300 MHz band. 1240-1260 MHz is used by the Global Navigation Satellite System of the Russian Federation, and 1260-1300 MHz used by Europe's Galileo system. China's Meidu system and Japan's QZSS and is planned to be used by Korea's new KPS system. When wildfires ignited by lightning swept through Northern California this past summer, they consumed more than 86,000 acres in San Mateo and Santa Cruz counties. The fires also left another casualty, the Empire Grade Radio Tower and its equipment. 
The tower provided critical connections for firefighters, hams, and community emergency response teams. The Community Foundation of Santa Cruz has pledged $25,000 from its Fire Response Fund to the restoration of this important radio tower and is using the pledge to match donations, many of which are being collected via the GoFundMe site. The nonprofit organization wrote on the fundraising site, The loss of this tower has impacted several community organizations. Fire departments, relying on the alert wildfire camera, community fundraisers, like bike and horseback rides that rely on the ham radio communicators, who used repeaters at the tower site, and emergency preparedness, like the CERT teams and equine evacuation teams that also relied on the communication resources made possible by this tower. According to the Salinas Valley Repeater Group website, the tower's destruction impacted the W6WLS 2-meter repeater, the W6DXW 70-centimeter repeater, and the WB6ECE 70-centimeter simulcast repeater. The website said that the W6WLS repeater returned to the air in October with a temporary setup in the Santa Cruz Mountains, running analog only and on battery or generator power. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Coming up on Ask the Tech Guy, it's the end of the line for Flash. What do we do now? Stay tuned. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Uh, welcome. Good to see you. This has been coming brewing for more than a decade. It started uh, back in, uh, well, I don't know, 2010. When, more than 10 years ago, when Steve Jobs wrote an open letter, put it on the front page of Apple, saying why we're not going to put Flash on our brand new iPad or on our iPhone. Adobe Flash was a technology that made it easy to do animations. Uh, in the early days of the web, that was a harder thing to do. You could have, yeah, you could even play movies through it. There was all sorts of things you could do with Flash. But there were a few problems with it. First of all, it wasn't very well written to begin with, uh, which means it took a lot of resources to play a Flash movie. It would slow your machine down. And frankly, Adobe has a terrible track record when it comes to security in its products, particularly Adobe Reader and Adobe Flash, their player. So there were a great many of security flaws. And frankly, Adobe Flash was a real nightmare on the internet it has been for the last 10 years now adobe announced years ago yeah we're gonna kill it we don't want to support it anymore we understand it's a problem and that's mostly because it isn't needed anymore for instance in the early days of youtube those were flash movies but long ago youtube converted to a technology that any browser can handle without the addition of any software or any plug-in they call it sometimes html5 video but essentially, the, the ability to playback video is built in now to all modern browsers. They don't need an additional Flash plug-in. Adobe sees the writing on the wall, and, and here's the deadline. December 31st, in 10 days, Adobe will no longer support Flash Player. And starting in a few weeks, January 12th, all Flash content 
will be blocked. Adobe strongly recommends all users immediately uninstall Flash Player to help protect their systems. So it's going to happen whether Turner Classic Movies or Spectrum wants it to happen or not that 99.9% of their visitors are going to not be able to see any video. Now, my suspicion is they they fixed this a long time ago. And for whatever reason, maybe they see Flash on your system. For whatever reason, they're still serving you Flash. But very few sites are still serving Flash. It just doesn't make sense anymore, given that none of your users will be able to use it in just a few days. Especially since they don't have to do a lot of jumping through hoops to get it working. It's an easy thing to just support existing web standards. They don't have to tell their users to download something, to install something. So whether they like it or not, it's going away. And, you know, I think what our caller on the radio show wanted, maybe you want too, is some workaround. No. <laughs> no. That's that's not going to happen. Yeah, there are ways to play Flash. In fact, there's some technologies out there that allow you to play Flash. The most... Um, widespread use of it is on the internet archives because they've decided to make an archive of great flash based websites now when i show you some of these flash websites you may understand why it's time flash died let me pull up this uh, showcase this is from the internet archive this is a showcase of flash from the great websites of the past, emphasize past, they're actually able to play it back, not with Flash, they're not using Flash, but with an open source plugin that plays Flash, in fact, probably plays it better than ever. You may say, oh, you know, we, we really should have that on our, our browsers. No, no. Look at how most of this stuff is super, super old. You know, you don't really need a lobster magnet on your system. And by the way, watch what happens when I go to lobster magnet on the Internet Archive, it actually has to launch an emulator to run this. I think if you use a modern browser, you'll see it. It'll still work. It just won't be using Flash. In fact, you may think it's using Flash, and it isn't. You don't need Flash anymore. YouTube works without Flash. Every site that I know of that's up-to-date works without Flash. The only sites that still require Flash are sites that nobody's touched in 10 years. Maybe the solitaire game that you really love you know, send them an email saying, hey, guys, but I guarantee you they know about this. And if they haven't done anything, it's because they don't care if they don't care. It's the end of life, the end of the line for Flash. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, let's see. What else can we talk about? I charge all my devices overnight and never really worry. And this is one of those topics that everybody has an opinion on, many of them wrong there are two separate issues at play here there is which is best for the battery and battery life and then which is least likely to burn your house down so i'll i'll, I'll tackle the battery life question first and this is the one that's most controversial there's a lot of debate i'm going to quote uh, what i consider an authoritative source it's a book called get ready for this batteries in a portable world a handbook on rechargeable batteries for non-engineers fourth edition it's actually written by a company called Kadex. It sells batteries, and they put a lot of this information on the website they've been running for some years, I think like 15 years, called Battery University. It's at batteryuniversity.com. So 
There's a lot of misinformation because of older battery technologies like nickel metal hydride, nickel cadmium. The batteries in your laptop, your phone, your vacuum cleaner, your toaster oven, anything that uses batteries these days, they're almost always lithium-ion batteries. And here's the good news. Lithium-ion batteries are pretty much maintenance-free, as close to maintenance-free as you can get. As long as you're operating them in moderate temperatures, they don't like extreme heat or extreme cold. If you're comfortable, they'll be comfortable. Uh, they should last really well without a lot of maintenance or a lot of attention for their entire rated cycle. Every lithium-ion battery has a rated cycle. In most cases, it's roughly 500 complete charges and discharges. That's going to last you a couple of three years. And typically with lithium-ion batteries, once they hit that limit, they just won't hold a charge anymore. They're done. You've got to replace them. Now, lithium batteries... Lithium-ion batteries are happiest between 30% charged and 80% charged. And what you really don't want to do, in fact, this is really the only no-no with lithium-ion batteries, is really fully, deeply discharge them. You don't want to run them to the ground. It's pretty hard to do that with any well-designed device, including every laptop, every phone out there. They all have circuitry to prevent you from using up the last bit of juice in that battery. They'll turn off before that happens. So you don't even have to worry about that. Properly designed circuitry, and again, most good devices are completely safe. They'll prevent you from the other dangerous thing that can happen with lithium-ion, which is overcharging. So if you plug in your phone or you plug in your laptop, it's okay to leave it plugged in. The circuitry in that phone or laptop will not overcharge the battery. Overcharging is dangerous because the battery can overheat and explode. This is not a good thing. But if it's a good device, you're not going to have to worry about that. Typically, the way these devices work is they allow the battery to power the device just for a little bit and then charge it back up a little bit, charge it back up a little bit. This is harmless to the battery. It will start to use up that cycle, but it takes thousands of these little charges, discharges to use up even one cycle. So it's not harmful. It's fine to do. Leave it plugged in. Uh, if you're going to store a device with a lithium-ion battery for an extended period of time, you're going to go on vacation for a couple of weeks or months. The best way to store lithium-ion batteries is about 50% charged. So discharge them a little bit over the way and then put them in storage. They'll be fine. In most cases, they'll keep that, uh, that charge for a very, very long time. That's really all you need to know. Now, let's talk about the dangerous side of lithium-ion batteries, the can-burn-your-house-down part. We've all been pretty casual about the risk posed by lithium-ion batteries. And honestly, I've never had a problem. I leave everything plugged in all the time. But you may have noticed, I, I flew on Cathay Pacific the other day. They had a big sign that said, do not bring your MacBook Pro 15-inch from the years 2015 through the 2017 on board this plane. You cannot. That's because Apple had a recall for those batteries. They tended to overheat. And potentially, with an overheating lithium-ion battery, as I mentioned, they could explode. On the airplane, they also said, if you lose your device in the seat, don't try to fetch it yourself. Call a flight attendant. That's because they don't want you to move the seat accidentally crush the battery because a punctured lithium-ion battery can catch on fire and, yes, explode. So that's what they're worried about. These things don't happen. It's very unlikely. But, you know, when they tell you, don't move the seat, don't move the seat. Let the uh, flight attendant fish your phone out from the seat for you. On the cruise we just went on, the captain said, please unplug all your chargers when you're not in your cabin. No, I didn't. Do that, But I do notice that when the cabin stewards came in to make the bed, they would go through and unplug all my devices. 
They're worried, again, about batteries that are not properly designed, that overcharge and potentially can overheat and catch fire. This is one of the reasons airlines won't let you bring large batteries on airplanes, anything more than 100 watts, and they won't let you check any kind of lithium-ion battery in the hold. That's because if it does catch on fire, they have no way to put it out. So these are all reasonable fears. They do happen from time to time. Remember the Note 7? Because they put too much battery in too little of a space. But remember, this was a big story. They made millions of them. Only 0.01% of them ever had a problem of any kind. It's just not that common. Frankly, anything that can store a lot of energy, whether it's a lithium-ion battery or a tank of gas, has the potential for releasing that energy very quickly, suddenly. It's what we call an explosion. A lot of energy suddenly released is an explosion. Lithium-ion batteries, much safer than a tank of gas, much safer than almost any other way to store energy. Just don't puncture the battery. Don't let it get too hot, and you'll be fine. And don't buy cheap stuff. I think the other reason people are worried is because, remember the hoverboards that came out from China? They were poorly manufactured. A number of them caught on fire. We have a good friend who had thousands of dollars of damage from a hoverboard that was left plugged in charging and caused a fire. But those are were badly designed circuits and no good device from a major manufacturer, not your smartphone from Android or iOS, not your laptop. None of them are going to have those problems. So leave them plugged in. If you're going to leave for a long time and don't leave them charging unattended for hours and hours, just to be on the safe side, I wouldn't want you to have anything bad happen to you. But lithium-ion batteries are safe, require very little maintenance. That's why they're so popular. That's why we use them everywhere. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. Our founding fathers knew that the United States would have to enter into legal and binding agreements with foreign countries. Thus, in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, they gave the President the power to make treaties with approval of two-thirds of the Senate. Over the years, the Supreme Court has ruled that provisions of a treaty are constitutional and legally binding, even if the exact same provisions contained in a law not covered by a treaty would not pass the constitutional test. Under the Radio Act of 1927 and the regulations issued by the Federal Radio Commission, amateurs were in the catbird seat, to use a popular phrase of the day. They had over 2,700 kilocycles of spectrum between 160 and 20 meters, plus another 15,000 kilocycles at 5 meters. They had a Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, who was a strong proponent of amateur radio. Congress was supportive and sympathetic. Nothing could go wrong. Or could it? Yes, it could. 
An international radio-telegraph conference was scheduled for Washington, D.C. on October 4, 1927. Here, participants from 74 nations would gather to hammer out an international treaty covering the entire known radio spectrum. Once this treaty was accepted by the Senate, it would become law and supersede anything contained in the 1927 Act. Although amateurs could count on the full support of the U.S. delegation, we had only one vote, the same as any of the other 73 participants. So how much support could we count on from the other countries? Sadly, not much. Democracy was still a foreign idea to most nations. Many hovered in that gray area between the old world monarchies and fascism, communism. Communications were a government monopoly. Individual private stations were feared. They could compete with the government stations or they could be used in anti-government activities. This attitude was even present in the representatives from England and France. As for the other countries, many were blatantly anti-amateur radio. Germany, for example, stated that private stations could violate the rights of the state. Switzerland was on the record against amateur radio. Japan would tolerate amateurs, however, they would have to use phantom, i.e. non-radiating antennas. In other words, you could have a transmitter, you just couldn't radiate a signal. One proposal would only give amateurs frequencies below 13 meters or above 23 megacycles. Fortunately, the ARRL and the International Amateur Radio Union, which was founded in 1925, were well aware of this hostility and had made detailed preparations. The IARU and the ARRL both had made presentations to the various delegations prior to the start of the conference. Support of the amateur community was also received from private radio interests and radio manufacturers. The ARRL and the IARU would both have delegates attending the conference. And so, after the opening session, which was addressed by President Calvin Coolidge and Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, who was also president of the conference, the delegates divided themselves into subcommittees and began to work. England, the European country most favorable to amateur radio, made its first proposal. Amateurs would be allowed in the 150 to 200 meter band, or 1,500 to 2,000 kilocycles, with a maximum power of 10 watts. The ARRL and IARU delegates, KB Warner, HP Maxim, and CH Stewart, as well as W.D. Terrell, who was chief of the radio division in the Department of Commerce, indicated that this was unacceptable. The British came up with a compromise position. Amateurs would have the 150-meter band, as well as bands at 2.75 megacycles, 3.66 megacycles, 5.5 megacycles, 11 megacycles, 22 megacycles, and 44 megacycles. Except for the 1,500 kilocycle to 2,000 kilocycle segment, each band would be only 100 kilocycles wide. The total amateur allocations under the British proposal were 1,100 kilocycles, of which 900 kilocycles was in the known usable spectrum below 15 megacycles. This was a 60% reduction for American hams in the frequencies below 15 megacycles and a whopping 93% reduction when you counted our 4 to 5 meter band. Nevertheless, many delegates urged the U.S. and the ARRL and the IARU representatives to accept this proposal. They pointed out that it was far more generous than many countries were willing to give on their own. 
With the use of CW and crystal control, it was argued, there would be enough room for all amateurs. Many were afraid that if the British compromise wasn't accepted, a more restrictive amateur band plan would take its place. The ARRL and IARU delegates had one thing in their corner, however, the strong support of Secretary Hoover and the American delegation. With that, they found the strength to carefully carry on. They were diplomatic, but they were persistent. Maxim, Stewart, and Warner proceeded step by step. The 160-meter band was first agreed on from 1715 to 2000 kilocycles. Next, it was decided that the remaining amateur bands would be at the 80, 40, 20-meter spots. How wide they would be was the next argument. On the 80-meter band, everyone was at a stalemate until it was suggested that the band could be from 3,500 kilocycles to 4,000 kilocycles on a non-exclusive basis. This was accepted by all of the delegates. Each country could decide for themselves how much of the 500 kilocycles they would allocate to amateurs. Next on the agenda was 20 meters. The United States wanted 14,000 to 16,000 kilocycles. There was no way any of the other delegates would agree. After much debate, the U.S. delegation realized that 400 kilocycles was the maximum they were going to get and acquiesced. With 160, 80, and 20 out of the way, and the U.S. assured of at least adequate domestic and international allocations, the subcommittee turned to 40 meters. The American delegation wanted 7,000 to 8,000 kilocycles. The most any other country was willing to offer was 7,000 to 7,200. Germany, in fact, put a high power station on 7,200 kilocycles in order to thwart a large amateur allocation on 40 meters. Back and forth the debate went. The other delegates finally offered 225 kilocycles. Maxim and Stewart felt they had played their last hand and wanted to accept the proposal. Warner, however, still pushed for 400 kilocycles. More debates followed. Finally, other delegates agreed to 300 kilocycles. From that point, additional bands were then set up at 10 meters and 5 meters. When the dust had settled, the conference had approved the following amateur bands. 1715 to 2000 kilocycles, 3500 to 4000 kilocycles, 7000 to 7300 kilocycles, 14,000 to 14,400 kilocycles, 28 to 30 megacycles, and 56 to 60 megacycles. This was a 37.5% reduction in the frequencies amateurs had under the U.S. regulations. However, it was a vast increase for the amateurs of most other countries. Furthermore, the frequencies approved by the conference established amateur radio under international law, something which had not existed before. Given the circumstances, this was a major victory for amateur radio. Initially, there was some opposition by a minority of the U.S. hams to the ratification of the treaty. The ARRL and the vast majority of amateurs, however, supported it, knowing that a small loss in frequencies was insignificant in comparison to the international recognition now given to amateur radio. The Senate agreed and on March 21, 1928, ratified the treaty. As a postscript, Herbert Hoover, the Secretary of Commerce, who had always supported amateur radio 100%, was elected President of the United States in November 1928, although most remember his administration as coinciding with the onset of the Great Depression, it was also the time of the greatest growth in amateur radio history. From the 1929 total of 16,289 hams 
1933 count of 41,555, Amateur Radio grew 255% in four years. Before his death at the age of 90 on October 20, 1964, Hoover would live to see his son, Herbert Hoover Jr., W6ZH, elected president of the ARRL and see an amateur running for president of the United States, Barry Goldwater, K7UGA, K3UIG. Whatever historians may think of his administration, Hams will always remember Herbert Hoover as a friend to amateur radio. Next time, the ancient amateur archives will begin to explore the battle over the VHF spectrum in the mid-1940s. Did you ever wonder what happened to TV Channel 1? The ancient amateur archives will have the answers. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in amateur radio. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. If you want to get involved in receiving or transmitting radio signals, a fundamental part of your setup is going to be an aerial of some sort. In fact, many say that the aerial is the most important element of your system. But for many enthusiasts, it may not be possible to put up a big antenna outdoors. But don't despair, all is not lost. Writing in the Hackaday blog, Al Williams, Whiskey Delta 5 Golf November Romeo, draws our attention to a YouTube video about indoor antennas. It's one of the recent presentations on the Waters and Stanton video channel. Pete Waters, Golf 3 Oscar Juliet Victor, talks about the effectiveness of indoor antennas and tells the story of the Krogers, Cold War spies living in Ricelip near London, who had a clandestine antenna hidden in their loft for communicating back to their spy masters in Russia. Al points out that many ham radio operators now live where installing an outdoor antenna is all but impossible. Housing associations seem to be on the prowl for ham antennas that don't conform to their rules, and increasing numbers of radio amateurs find themselves in this situation. Peter talks about the Kroger's transmitters that were so well hidden that it took MI5 nine days to find the first of them, and their antenna, which was a 22-metre wire in the attic of their home. Remember that old valve transmitters could tolerate poorly matched antennas and still produce power. Peter goes on to talk about different types of indoor antennas for ham radio use and says that they probably won't be as good as a proper outdoor antenna, but you can make quite a few contacts and with some skill and some luck and good propagation, you will have success. You can view the presentation by going to YouTube and typing in Spy Radio and Indoor Antennas. The FCC and the American Radio Relay League have agreed to work together to create a new, more involved volunteer monitor program to replace the former official observer program. Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, former FCC special counsel for amateur radio enforcement, is heading the new program. I spoke with Hollingsworth earlier this week, and this is the full interview. Uh, I was vice director of the Atlantic Division. But we decided that since we're going to implement that, and I'm, I'm really uh, in favor of doing that, and, and I wanted to do it, so the league offered me the chance to do it. I thought that it, uh, to avoid any appearance of a conflict of interest, 
you know, regarding enforcement in the Atlantic Division. I thought that um, I would just relinquish the vice director position to help implement the volunteer monitor program. Uh, in a meeting uh, between the ARRL and the FCC in November 2017 to discuss overall enforcement in the amateur radio service, the FCC suggested that the league think about starting a new and stronger program to replace the longstanding official observer program in conjunction with the FCC. The agreement that the FCC and the League made regarding the Official Observer Program was made back in 1994, so it was uh, growing whiskers there, and it was at a time when the FCC field offices were, for the most part, fully staffed. Uh, But since 1994, under certain chairmen, the FCC field offices have been severely cut back. The uh, antenna monitoring locations are still there and are tied into Columbia, Maryland. But the number of engineers at the FCC has been reduced, and some field offices have closed as a result of the shift in FCC priorities. Now, this was brought about by the explosion in communications technology from satellite to Internet and about everything else. There were several meetings with the FCC in this regard, including meetings at the uh, FCC headquarters in D.C., and the FCC offered to place stronger emphasis in ARRL reporting violations of the bans in exchange for more for more detailed training and management of those serving as uh, official observers. So the league saw that as an opportunity to work more closely with the FCC, and the FCC agreed. And uh, it was decided, in order to avoid confusion, to totally rebrand the official observer program, known as the OO program, and call it the volunteer monitor program. Uh, since we already have volunteer counsel and volunteer examiners, for example, it was consistent with uh, with that. The FCC and the League have been working on details of this agreement since 2017, and we all now have a meeting in the minds about it. So what we've agreed on is that the volunteer monitors will have limited terms and will be fewer in number than the OOs. Uh, whereas we had about 700-and-something OOs, really only about a, uh, about a third of them weren't active anyhow. So the numbers are not that too far off. And these uh, volunteer monitors would be placed around the country or located around the country, of course, but with emphasis on geographic areas where there are no field offices or where there are field offices that are exceptionally burdened with their workload. On the ARRL website, you should see soon uh, application forms for volunteer monitoring, and we encourage all of the OOs to apply. Now, the volunteer monitors will undergo more training than the OOs, and it will be more often, and the FCC will participate in this training on a regular basis. Uh, The FCC has agreed to accept reports of volunteer monitors through the league of repeated rule violations in our service together with more thorough documentation, and they will use this information for first instance enforcement actions, uh, included but not limited to warning letters and other more severe enforcement actions. The FCC will also, to the extent possible under the privacy laws, give us more frequent reports about the status of its enforcement actions that spring out of the volunteer monitor program. And it was agreed that the FCC and the League would meet at least annually to discuss the needs and requirements of the program. Now, the OO program has been a hallmark of the League, and I know in my term working in amateur enforcement, I relied significantly on the reports of OOs. In fact, the first dozen or so cases we initiated in 1999 and 2000 when we reinstituted amateur radio enforcement were all based on OO findings, uh, supplemented with independent 
FCC investigation. Now, the new arrangement actually verifies the value of the longstanding OO program as it morphs into the volunteer program because if it weren't for the hard work of the OOs, and as you know, OOs have invested hours in monitoring to keep the amateur radio bands in good shape when they could have just been having fun making contacts themselves. If it weren't for their hard work, the FCC would never have made this offer to us. This new agreement and procedure should be a major force multiplier in making up for the fewer numbers of FCC field engineers working in enforcement. And uh, personally, I think it was a tremendous offer from the FCC, and the league is very grateful. I'm glad we're taking advantage of it, and we don't plan to let the FCC down. We're going to try to make it a great program for both the FCC and all amateur radio operators nationwide. Beyond that, I would say stay tuned. IARU Region 1 reports that an earthquake on December the 29th at 12.19 UTC has caused severe damage in the town of Pricinia in Croatia. Their website says that the town is about 50 kilometers from the capital Zagreb. The neighboring country of Slovenia has shut down the Kursko nuclear power plant as a precaution. The earthquake reached a magnitude of 6.4. The epicenter was 46 kilometers southeast of Zagreb, the seismological center for the European Mediterranean, reported on Tuesday. Initial reports spoke of major damage. The town of Pricinia has about 25,000 inhabitants. It was badly affected. Roofs, facades and entire buildings collapsed, the seismological center said. All services engaged in the earthquake-affected area are reported to be organized and have their own communications. But this earthquake is one of many in recent days, and the National Society in Croatia, the HRS, is asking member radio hams to be close to their radios, and a net is formed on 3.675 MHz, as well as DMR and repeaters, in case any assistance is needed. You can read more on the IARU Region 1 website. That's IARU-R1.org. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. This is W2XBS with this week's propagation forecast for Friday, January 1st, 2021. Tad Cook in Seattle, K7RA, reports that solar cycle 25 is progressing normally, and with the new year, his outlook is optimistic. Solar minimum occurred just over a year ago, in December of 2019, and now we see very few days with no sunspots. Both of the current sunspot groups, number 2794 and 2795, are about to slip across the sun's western horizon. Average daily sunspot numbers this past week was 27.1, up from 10.3 the previous week. Average daily solar flux rose from 82.8 to 86.4. The predicted solar flux over the next 15 days is 79 on January 3rd and 4th, 78 on January 5th to the 8th, 84 on January 9th all the way to the 14th, 85, 86, and 87 respectively on January 15th, 16th, and 17th. 
The predicted planetary A index is 8 and 5 on January 3rd and 4th, 8 on January 5th through the 7th, and 5 on January 8th through the 17th. On November the 8th, 2020, the sun exploded. I bet that caught your attention. Well, so says Al Williams, Whiskey Delta 5 Golf November Romeo, writing on the Hackaday website about the effect of solar flares on radio communications and electronic devices. Well, that is a bit dramatic because the sun explodes a lot, but a particularly large sunspot named AR2781 produced a C5-class solar flare, which is a medium-sized explosion even for the sun. Flares range from A, B, C, M to X, with a 0 to 9 scale in each category, or even higher for the really giant X flares. So, a C5 is just about centre of the scale. You might not have noticed it here in Europe, but if you lived in Australia or around the Indian Ocean and you were using radio frequencies below 10 MHz, you would have noticed, since the flare caused a 20-minute long complete radio blackout at those frequencies. According to NOAA's Space Weather Prediction Center, Sunspot AR2781 has the energy to produce M-class flares, which are an order of magnitude more powerful than what's already been experienced. NOAA also has a scale for radio disruptions, ranging from R1, which equates to an M1 flare, to R5 for an X20 flare. The sunspot in question is facing Earth for the moment, so any new flares will cause more problems. This led Al Williams to ask, what if there were a major radio disruption? In his article, Al looks at past history of solar flares and the surprising amount of disruption they caused when HF communications were much more heavily relied upon than they are today. He also examines how, in our changing use of the radio spectrum, what potential problems would be caused by major sunspots to modern communications and power grids. Insurance companies reckon that a really big solar event could cause damage costing $2.6 trillion. Well, if you want to find out more, Al's article can be found at hackaday.com. It's called Solar Flares and Radio Communications. How precarious are our electronics? The Get on the Air to Care campaign in the UK has won another victory for encouraging increased radio contacts during their current lockdown. The Radio Society of Great Britain, which partnered with the UK's National Health Service in this campaign, has raised more than £2,000, or nearly $2,800 in equivalent U.S. currency, following its charity auction. An anonymous CW enthusiast made the winning bid of £1,025.99 for a handcrafted bug CW key made by Roy Bailey, G0VFS. The RSGB is matching the funds and donating the sum to the National Health Service Charities Together Fund. Meanwhile, the related campaign, Get on the Air for Christmas, continues until January 9th, encouraging holiday QSOs as a way to ease isolation. Foundations of Amateur Radio The other day I wanted to know what kind of communication was possible between my station and the station of a friend of mine. We want to do some experiments, and for that to be possible, we need to have a reliable communication channel. Traditionally, you would get in touch with each other and attempt to find a suitable frequency on a band to make a QSO, or contact. That generally involves picking a band, then tuning around the band, finding a frequency that's not in use, then listening, asking if the frequency is in use, then telling your friend via an alternative method where you are, 
only to have them tell you that they have noise at that particular frequency. You go back and forth a couple of times, finally settle in on a mutually convenient frequency and have a contact whilst keeping note of the signal strength shown on your receiver. On a good day that will take a few minutes. On a bad day that might take much longer or not work at all. If you want to do this across multiple bands, you have the fun of doing this whole thing multiple times. In case you're wondering, I've done this plenty of times, and I will confess that it's an interesting combination of joy and frustration in attempting to get the answer to a pretty simple and common question. Can I talk to my friend? In my shack, there are plenty of tools, digital multimeters, LC meter, antenna analyzer, and the like. No doubt you have some or more of those. Perhaps you have an oscilloscope, a vector network analyzer, or other gadgets. None of those are particularly useful tools to solve this particular problem. On the other hand, you are likely to have a receiver, and probably a transmitter. If you're reading or listening to this, you're likely to have a computer as well. Using a receiver and a computer as a tool to solve this problem might not have occurred to you. It hadn't occurred to me until recently that these are ideally suited for this particular repetitive task. So, I fired up my copy of WSJTX and set it to whisper mode, changed the band to 2 meters and set it up to transmit. The other station did the same. Within a couple of minutes the results were coming in. We could both see what the link quality was like between us. Then we changed to 70 centimeters and did it again. Rinse and repeat for 10 meters. As it happens, the other station was receive only, and they had to attend some family activities, and I was in my office earning a living. Well, actually doing my bookkeeping, but you get the idea. You can do this test while you're doing something else. I checked in a couple of times to see how it was going, when he pointed out that I could see his actual results on the whispernet.org website. I had been looking at the map with mixed results because it had been timing out for most of the day, and when it did work, all I could see was that a message was decoded, not how well it was received. Randall, VK6 Whiskey Romeo, the other station, then pointed me at the link to the database, which I hadn't seen until then. If you're looking for it, it's at the top right. Out pops a list of all the whisper spots his station reported, and, as a bonus, the spots reported by another local amateur. If you know me at all, it will come as no surprise that I used the opportunity to make a chart. Actually, I made several. One showing the frequency drift between our stations, one showing the signal strength. Between the three bands, it looks like 2 meter gives us the best opportunity for experimentation, though 70 centimeters does appear to have some possibilities. Sadly, 10 meters isn't, with the antennas currently in the air. But I saw an email the other day with reports of a new vertical at the other end, so we will have a go at doing the 10 meter test again in the very near future, perhaps even today. Right now, from the whispernet.org website, I'm downloading this month's Whisper reports from the download section to see who else saw my signals. No doubt I'll make a chart all six. I'll keep you posted. I must thank Randall, VK6 Whiskey Romeo, for pointing me at the database link on the whispernet.org website because that made propagation and link testing so much more useful and repeatable. Tools come in all shapes and sizes. What's one that unexpectedly helped you lately? I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. This week in Amateur Radio is holding open auditions for news anchors for the weekly national worldwide amateur radio news service. If you have a good radio voice and can reliably read provided news copy, we are looking for you. 
This, of course, is an all-volunteer position. An amateur radio license is not required. You must have a high-quality microphone. Headset mics are not used. And be familiar with audio editing software to record and edit your finished news stories before uploading. If you would like to try out for a weekly or bi-weekly anchor position with North America's premier amateur radio news on air and podcast, please send an email to our producer, George, W2XBS. You can include a sample MP3 of yourself reading news copies sent as an attachment to W2XBS77 at gmail.com. That's whiskey, the number two, X-Ray Bravo Sierra 77 at gmail.com. Be sure and use Anchor Audition in the subject line. Please include your phone number and a good window of time for a callback to discuss your submission and our operating logistics to see if This Week in Amateur Radio is a good fit for you. We hope to hear from you soon. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. A ham radio license plate designed by ARRL member Matt Machiavelli, KY4GPD of Georgetown, Kentucky, has received the approval of the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet. His design was one of four options, which included retaining the current license plate design. The ham radio community in the Bluegrass State picked Machiavelli's design with a 41% plurality. It just hasn't sunk in, Machiavelli told the Georgetown News Graphic. I'm just amazed that it actually went. Somebody in the state government must have liked the idea. The lengthy approval process involved some footwork on the part of the ARRL field organization in Kentucky. After the polling ended, ARRL Kentucky Section State Government Liaison Jack Hedges, KY4TPR, met with the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet for final approval on Machiavelli's design. If there's ever an example of what the ARRL organization can do for the ham radio community, this would be it, Hedges told the newspaper. The new license plate will not be available until the current stock of plates is depleted, which is anticipated to be next summer. ARRL Kentucky Section Manager Steve Morgan W4NHO told the newspaper that a ham radio license plate is important to build awareness of amateur radio. The amateur radio license plate is sort of like a billboard, saying you're from Kentucky and you're a ham radio operator, Morgan said. Machiavelli agreed, saying he thought the current design had to become stale and did not stand out. A ham for six years, Machiavelli is a certified Skywarn storm spotter and an assistant emergency coordinator for Scott County, Kentucky. I heard some people already said they like the new design and are going to switch when it comes out, Machiavelli told the newspaper. A ham radio license plate in Kentucky costs $46, with a $25 personalization charge. Renewals will cost $21.
The 2021 ARRL Ritchie Roundup on January 2nd and 3rd features two new multi-operator categories, Multi-2M2 and Multi-Multi-MM. Since M2 and MM are new categories, there are no existing records, so the high scores for these categories will, by default, become the new records. High scores are kept by U.S. Call Area, ARRL Division, ARRL Section, Canadian Province, and DX Entity. If you're new to RTTY or digital modes, in the RTTY Roundup, operators worldwide contact and exchange QSO information with other amateurs using Baudot RTTY, PSK, FD8, and FD4, ASCII, Amtor, and Packet. Automated operation is not permitted. Each claimed contact must include contemporaneous direct initiation by the operator on both sides of the contact. If you have to look outside your immediate household for M2 or MM operators and you're already set up for RTTY or FD8 or FD4, consider staying safe and letting other team members access your station remotely via any desk or another sharing technology. Key to making this easy and frustration-free for all involved is that all aspects of your station's operation be controllable from your logging computer's desktop and that the RTTY audio be audible to the remote operator using RTTY via the sharing software. It is possible to do RTTY without listening to the receiver and just by watching the decode and the XY waterfall, but it's not recommended. Many, if not most, RTTY operators prefer low-level audio to signal when other stations are transmitting. For those using FTX modes, all you really need is the screen display. Contacts must be made on 80, 40, 20, 15, and 10 meters. Any station may work any other station. Stations may be worked once per band, regardless of mode. The ARRL RTTY Roundup begins at 1800 UTC on January 2nd and wraps up at 2359 UTC on January 3rd. Any ham will tell you when it comes to a good signal, it's all about your antenna. That wisdom is also a guiding principle for Project Kuiper, the Amazon satellite constellation designed to provide internet access from space, which will be used in competition with SpaceX's Starlink system. Following development and testing this past fall, Amazon has unveiled its single aperture phased array design antenna that it plans to use on customer terminals with the company's Project Kuiper satellite constellation. The details are made public on December 16th, revealing a small light antenna no more than 12 inches across and with a capacity of a maximum throughput of as much as 400 megabytes per second. The small size has been designed to keep production costs low. Amazon's planned deployment of the 3,236 Low Earth Orbit Satellite Group got the go-ahead this past summer from the Federal Communications Commission. The project's goal is to provide low-latency broadband Internet access with a focus on serving communities in remote regions without traditional high-speed Internet access. The project's senior manager of hardware and antenna development, Mima Monafar, has said in published reports that the single aperture antenna design is unprecedented for the KA band, which is in the microwave range where transmit and receive frequencies are very far apart. Project Kuiper boasts a major advancement here, 
combining transmit and receive phased array antennas into one aperture. The December Youth Youngsters on the Air Month activity has already exceeded its goal of making 100,000 contacts, but promoters aren't stopping there. With just a few more days left, DYM is encouraging a last-minute push to break last year's world contact record of nearly 129,000. Now, we want to encourage all the youth on the air stations and their operators to contact youngsters worldwide, also outside of Region 1, a Youngsters on the Air Facebook post said. Let's show the youngsters from Region 2 and 3 that there are youth on air and give them a chance to log as many youngsters on the air month stations as possible. Participants younger than age 26 in all international amateur radio union regions outside the U.S. may be found using youngsters on the air month suffix call signs. In the U.S., in Region 2, young operators are on the air with one-by-one special event call signs K8Y, K8O, K8T, and K8A. To make it easy to find participating youngsters on the air month stations worldwide, a filtered search has been set up on DX Summit. Activity will be on all modes, including satellite operation. All radio amateurs can support this effort by contacting participating stations. An awards program is available. Members of the ARRL headquarters staff will put W1AW on the air for straight key night. Set some time aside on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day to take part in this annual ARRL tradition. Straight key night begins at 0000 UTC on January 1, 2021. New Year's Eve in U.S. time zones and wraps up on 2359 UTC. Not a contest, Straight Key Night is dedicated to celebrating amateur radio's Morse code heritage. Bring out the brass, get on the air, and enjoy casual CW contacts, preferably using a straight hand key or semi-automatic key. Activity traditionally centers on the CW segments in the HF bands. W1AW will focus on 80, 40, and 20 meters. Submit your straight key night list of stations contacted and your votes for best fist and most interesting QSL by January 31st. New Zealand is putting wireless power transfer systems using 148.5 kHz to 30 MHz into the general user radio license for short-range devices category. The General User Radio License for Short Range Devices Notice has been updated to include several amendments. These include new provisions to permit the use of the frequency range 0.1485 to 30 MHz for wireless power transfer and induction loop systems used to detect foreign objects, to permit the use of the frequency range 1785 to 1805 MHz for wireless microphone, in-ear monitors, or wireless audio transmitters, to implement World Radio Conference 19 Resolution 229 regarding the 5150 to 5350 MHz band to permit wireless local area network outdoor use and a power level up to 0 dBW, and to permit the use of the frequency range 13.553 to 13.567 MHz for radio frequency identification transmitters. A general user radio license permits transmitting without the need to get a license or paying licensing fees. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. So what tools should I bring is a question I often find myself asking. Unlike changing the oil in the car, I can't always bring all the tools I want to when working on a tower. Lots of folks use a hanging tool bag. I don't use one, so I don't get to carry all my tools. I have to anticipate what I may need to bring along. The job sort of dictates what tools I'll need. I often wear a light windbreaker with two large zipper pockets on the front, and that's where most of my tools and supplies ride during the climb. The basics I usually carry on first-time installations are pliers, vice grips, wrenches in standard sizes, one locking razor blade knife, two small variable wrenches, one multi-purpose belt-mounted hand tool that includes screwdrivers, cutters, and a knife. I also bring several rolls of coax seal and electrical tape. Some extra stuff I always bring are a AA battery-powered HT and an earbud speaker. I bring two loop-type canvas climbing straps, extra carabiners, a camera with film and battery. I photograph my work for the customers. Many of them seem to really like that. When working on an installation I'm not very familiar with, I use extra straps and safety gear just in case. If the tower you're climbing on has a steel safety cable, but your ascender is made for ropes, the ascender will slip down or not lock with downward pressure. Always be sure to bring extra carabiners, if for nothing more than to secure each ascender where you climb to so they don't slowly, silently sneak downwards. There are two basic types of applications for ascenders. For climbing with a steel safety cable, the regular rope type ascender won't latch properly. Climbing with a steel safety cable ascender on a rope, the rope could get damaged by the tough clamping action of the steel cable type ascender. Always be sure you are using the proper type of ascender before climbing. An ascender is a device which is slipped over a rope or cable and is connected to a climbing belt. As the climber goes higher, the ascender slides up the cable, but if pulled downwards, it grips tightly and holds in place. Many commercial towers have safety cables. Before you use a safety cable, check it and be sure it's in good condition. When climbing down on the same ascender, you must grab its handle and lift upwards to release the catch and then push the ascender down as far as you can reach, then climb down to it. An additional safety device you could use would be a carabiner from your harness to the safety cable in case you unknowingly became unattached from the ascender. I hear from lots of people about a fear of climbing. I always tell them the same thing. After you get above the treetops, you lose the sense of gaining altitude. Just like riding in a commercial airliner, if the plane gained or lost altitude, maybe a couple thousand feet, you would have no way to tell just by looking at the ground. The same thing is true for tower climbing. The change in the way things look is so gradual, it's hard to tell you're getting higher from the air. I'm always too busy paying attention to what I'm doing and how I feel. I seldom pay attention to the scenery until I get to where I need to go. It's difficult to look straight down since the tower blocks most of your view. It's easy not to ever see the ground directly below you. I think a healthy respect for heights can help keep you from taking unnecessary chances with safety gear too. So don't let a little fear stop you from taking care of your own tower work. What you should be afraid of is climbing without the proper safety gear and training. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio.
Get ready for a history-making satellite to launch in February of 2021. Mauritius is preparing to send MIR-SAT-1, the nation's first CubeSat, to the International Space Station. The nanosatellite will be carrying an amateur radio digipeter and a whole lot of national pride. It is the creation of a team of engineers from Mauritius working with a ham radio operator from the Mauritius Amateur Radio Society. The project was also a collaboration with AAC Clyde Space UK. MIR stands for Mauritius Infrared Satellite. According to the Mauritius Research and Innovation Council, the satellite will use the digipeter to enable experimental communication with other islands via the satellite, both for emergency purposes and scientific research. The CubeSat will also collect land and ocean data. Management of ocean resources is a top priority of the government of the Republic of Mauritius. It is expected to be deployed in May or June from the Japanese experimental module on board the ISS. MIRSAT-1 has an expected lifetime of between two and three years, and during that time it is expected to make ground contact with Mauritius four or five times daily. And now with our final story this week, here is Steve Richards, G4HPE. Writing in a Quanta magazine article, David Say says that science seeks the basic laws of nature. Mathematics searches for new theorems to build upon the old. Engineering builds systems to solve human needs. The three disciplines are interdependent but distinct. Very rarely does one individual simultaneously make contributions to all three, but Claude Shannon was a rare individual. Despite being the subject of a recent documentary film by Mark Levinson called The Bit Player, Shannon is not exactly a household name. He never won a Nobel Prize, and he wasn't a celebrity like Albert Einstein or Richard Feynman, either before or after his death in 2001. He was born in Michigan in 1916, and after writing a thesis on what is now considered the starting point of electronic circuit design, he worked for 10 years on his masterwork called A Mathematical Theory of Communication, which modelled the path of a piece of information from source to destination. What was so groundbreaking is that he used mathematical probability to examine how noise in the transmission path introduced uncertainty that the message would be delivered wholly and correctly. He was the first scientist to introduce the concept of a binary digit, that is, naught or one. You can read the full article at www.quantamagazine.org and you can find out more about the documentary The Bit Player at thebitplayer.com. Many of the news and information items heard on This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by the American Radio Relay League, the ARRL Letter, the ARRL Audio News, the Southgate Amateur Radio News Service, Southgate Vibes, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, the FCC, the Radio Society of Great Britain and Ofcom, the SARL, the International Amateur Radio Union, the Wireless Institute of Australia, the Amateur Radio Newsline, the International Telecommunications Union, and various news sources on the Internet. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters around the country and around the world on great repeater systems like WA3PBD repeater system on Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. on 146.730 and 223.940, covering all of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and beyond.
This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.